Neil. Welcome to another episode of The Hip Historians. How you doing, buddy? Hip, hip, hip. Here we are. Here we are for yet another cracking interview. Looking forward to this one. And Margaret Coker joining us all the way from the United States of America. Yeah, Georgia, right? Georgia, I think she's in. Yeah, and like Margaret is like a prize-winning investigative reporter. She's a big, big name in, in journalism stakes. But you know what, Derek? She swapped it all out. She swapped out like this high-profile, high-flying job to take up. Uh, I think she's she's might be telling us about it. She's taking Lo- up a position in, in local newspapers now. Local press, yeah. Fair play to her, you know. So, fair play. Yeah, living the dream. <laughs> living the dream, as we're all aspiring to do. So we're gonna- She's going to take us for a bit of a tour through the shady spy world of Baghdad and the Iraq situation. So, yeah, really looking forward to listening to her. So with that, oh, I think here she is. Hello, yeah, Margaret. To, hello, Margaret. How are you doing? Welcome on board. Hi, guys. I'm chewing my lunch. So you're quite all right. You, 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 you take your time. Me chewing. You're OK. <laughs> you're OK. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for... Uh, Thanks for including me. I mean, I I presume you read my book, yeah. um, and that's always um, a great thing for first time author. So uh, that's um, that's a, a um, part of the reason why uh, I want to join. Um, second of all, you know, I'm I I wouldn't say I was at a midlife crisis, but you know, I left this <laughs> supposedly high flying, sexy career as a foreign correspondent. I've come home to Georgia and. Um, after writing my book, I have done something completely different, which is launch a local news organization. Oh, and wow. so I um, I have a lot of, of admiration to people who are following their dreams, um, whatever stage of their life. But kudos to you both for um, for trying to make something new and exciting. We're, we're, yeah, that's that's... We're, we're definitely sharing an experience there. I suppose yeah. by way of introduction, you know, Margaret is our esteemed guest, prize-winning journalist. Your stories are kind of spanned across, what, 32 countries, four continents, 20-odd years as a foreign correspondent. And yeah, you were bureau chief in, bureau chief in Iraq for a time, 2017, which I, I presume... I mean, is that is again this story that came across this uh, from there up before that? Yeah. So, I, um, as an American, I, I come from a long line of military officers. That's the family profession, if there is one. And uh, you know, I, I like to say that we're not the kind of family that big historical tomes get written about. You know, we're people who who kind of march uh, march along and, and follow orders rather than than uh, do anything super grand. But that led me into my career as a journalist at Draft, and I just happened to have grown up in this time of the forever wars, the, the two counterterrorism wars that America has fought and tried in vain to win. And so the course of my career has taken me mostly through through the Iraq wars. I, I was there at the start of, of the U.S. invasion in 2003, and so you have know, developed over the last 20 years a whole host of sources I got, you know, the genesis of my book, you know, obviously I I was, um, you know, when you rise to the ranks of of working for the New York Times, you have a larger audience, you know, you you make more impact sometimes with the stories you write. But as the Baghdad bureau chief for the New York Times, I did have a crackerjack kind of story. And that was the genesis for, for the book. I really thought as, you know, as an individual who care a lot about America's footprint overseas and 
the way in which the Middle East has developed and stagnated. You know, I thought it was high time for a book about Iraq to be written with Iraqis as the main characters and put them back as, as you know, agents of change and the agents of influence in the way that that history has unfolded there over the last 15 years or so. And so The Spy Master of Baghdad, my book, has endeavored to do just that. Yeah, it definitely has. I mean, it, it, it is that thing. I mean, you don't need There's lots of books out there, obviously, about the war and some written by people who are in the military and, and whatnot. But yeah, you're right. You don't get to see the, the effect. And what I mean, like a lot of people, I think I'm correct in saying, probably don't really know the difference between Sunni and Shiite and why on earth they might be fighting. And surely they're all just Arab peoples and this is all Arabs, you know, against the US. It's not quite like that at all. And, and certainly being a, an Irishman, we've had the troubles up north. And it's a similar thing. I mean, as a Southerner, we're very distance from it. We're actually doing a series on 100 years of Ireland and we're, we're concentrating quite a lot about what's happened up north. But that's it's that sectarian divide. I mean, I, like my grandmother was Catholic. She married a, a Protestant from Northern Ireland. My sister-in-law is married to a Protestant and it's, it is it is fine. We all get along. But you take that across the border towards Belfast and Armagh and all that, it's totally different. And this is the story of, of, of Iraq. You know? And, and, the, and the, I suppose the, the, the backdrop for it is, is the fact that Iraq is Shiite, and it's got a Sunni minority that were protected under the Ba'athist regime. And when the U.S. entered, they just flipped the whole thing around. And that hence where the, the Sunni insurgency came from, isn't it? Yeah, it, and it's, it's remarkable, I mean, in the course of my adulthood, in the course of my professional life, the idea that tribalism is such a key part of our identities in 2001, that seemed like a very far away kind of concept. I mean, I come from a long line of Ryans from, from the southwest corner of Ireland. We came over on the boat to the U.S., you know, at the turn of the 20th century. So tribalism has a place, I think, in all of our national consciousness. It's just now in this hyper-partisan world we're living in that feels more urgent. But yeah, I, I mean, in, in the Arab world, in the Muslim world writ large, there, there are two sects, and, and there, there's very deep theological differences that, that, that have grown up and grown toxic. And Iraq, uh, you know, in our understanding of, of the way of the wave of counterterrorism and terrorism writ large in the last 20 years, I think Americans for sure, and I think, you know, my time living in the UK very recently, you know, there isn't a good appreciation about how all of those cross currents and violence and differences have 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 led to Iraq really being the ground zero for everything that is the major spikes and the major trends of terrorism that, that we're still feeling today. I mean, Iraq was not the birthplace of modern Islamic terrorism. In fact, Iraq has a whole diversity of, of peoples and faiths and um, demographics. And for a large part of the 20th century, Iraq was actually, you know, a very peaceful place. It was under a dictatorship, right? And there, that's a, there's a whole lot of political backlash uh, from from the Saddam era. But in terms of religious strife, Iraqis themselves became as much a victim of, of religious extremism as the perpetrators uh, in in the last several years. But there's a certain amount of tolerance, obviously. I mean, one of the main characters in the book, Abrar. I mean, like, wow. I mean, that was just mind blowing. That that whole it just. I mean, like, you, you, I, mean, I can't, I, mean, I actually still find it hard to, that how she ends up doing what, what she, I can understand, but I'm not there. And I suppose it's, it's against the backdrop, obviously, where, where she grew up. 
reasonably well to do. And then you've got the other side of it, obviously, in the other part of it, the Falcons team, which is Saddam City, which really is what we came to know in the West through the media as Saddam City, because that was this Muslim Shiite cleric uh, who was assassinated in 1980, is that right, by, by, by Saddam. So it's, it, it, it is interesting that the Iraq, the, the, the Baghdad that you arrived in in 2017, it kind of, it's quite surprised you in ways, isn't it? And, and, and what you see, it's certain, you know, certain, certain nightclubs and things like that. And yeah, you, know, you didn't expect, is that right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, didn't, um, I didn't read classics, although I did go to Catholic school in the U.S., so there was a lot of Latin in my background, and I had a great Latin teacher who wanted to fill out our our knowledge of ancient worlds and ancient civilizations. So Bunia as a place where, where there was a, the crossroads of civilization and even the the wellspring of civilization, Western civilization, is something that wasn't, I mean, I, I knew about that, but, but Baghdad is the city, Baghdad is the modern city, the Baghdad that I've known since 2003 has, has been this metropolis that uh, was unwinding, unraveling, you know, uh, again, a multicultural city with a very educated population, an upper class, an elite that was no longer elite, a working class that suddenly became rulers, and then terrorism was the great equalizer. There was so much violence in Baghdad in the mid-2000s that friends of mine, they, 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 would, they left home for school, elementary or, or secondary school students, and never saw their parents again because their parents were killed in, in just random terrorist violence. You know, there's, there's so much of that scarring and that trauma that, that Iraqis are still trying to work through. But mm. Baghdad as a city also was, has been working through that. I mean, how do you revive, how do you rebuild when so much of your, so much of your, of your cities and neighborhoods have been destroyed by war? And so in 2014, that was the summer that the Islamic State reared its ugly head and uh, in, in a blitzkrieg took over a third of Iraq's landmass. And the leadership of, of the Islamic State are also Iraqis. And so suddenly Iraq was in a real civil war with itself. The nation rose up as the as patriots are wont to do in defense of their nation. And Baghdad was very far away from the front lines of the ground war that then went forward for three years. And, but when in that summer of 2014, yeah, people who live in Baghdad, the capital, you know, they thought that that Blitzkrieg could actually reach um, reach the capital. And like the ancient sacking of Babylonia and Baghdad, um, there was real fear uh, that that could happen again because the Islamic State was so so brutal and so excruciatingly strong on the battlefield. And so we went from that like moment of crisis and real terror in Baghdad to when I went back in 2017 to live there full time with the New York Times. And there was a capital that was in a full kind of metamorphosis. It, it had it was in a renaissance and there were nightclubs. There were people were safe. People were reinvesting in their small businesses. I mean, you, you saw families, uh, you know, playing um, football on the streets, you know, late at night, having picnics, um, eating ice cream. Um, but, but, you know, young people were having a life for the first time in, in my living memory. Mm. And that sparked, I mean, a lot of wonder in my mind, but also lots of questions as an investigative journalist. Like, who had finally cracked the nut since 2003 to turn Baghdad around from being the murder capital of the world because of all of the relentless violence to a place where 
people felt safe at night. And so asking that one question of who had managed to get back dad safe led me down this reporting journey, which has led to uh, both the, uh, the front page story I wrote for the New York Times and then the book. It turns out that amid all of the chaos and all of the mistakes and all of the violence of Iraq, guess what? There's actually strong-willed, strong-hearted patriots who have been working diligently and secretly behind the scenes since the mid-2000s to put together a crack uh, intelligence unit run by all Iraqi officers who, it turns out, had a secret weapon in helping defeat the Islamic State in Iraq. And that was uh, the spy master of Baghdad who put one of his officers undercover uh, inside the Islamic State behind enemy lines to help provide real-time intelligence about what the enemy was doing. And so, like any great war, there's always great heroes. And uh, the spy master of Baghdad is telling some of those tales. Amazing. So, so, so like, obviously, these... these you know, the people in this crack unit. So, okay, we don't want to give too many spoilers, because obviously you want people to get into the whole pace and, and uh, of the book, but there is, there's lots of pace, it's great. It's, I, actually, I love that kind of uh, historical narrative that's kind of starting to uh, grow into history now. But uh, so t- tell us a little bit about the characters, that might be the best. Yeah, so I've got uh, four four main uh, people that I'm, I'm profiling through the book. I've tried to make the book readable to people who don't, really know much about modern Iraq or care much about the modern Middle East, or as you've said, don't quite know the difference between Sunnis and Shias. I mean, all of those facts, I hope you're going to learn a little bit in my book, but really this is a human-driven, character-driven piece of historic nonfiction. These are all real people. And there's a set of brothers who are actual brothers as well as brothers in arms because they join the same elite intelligence unit. And at the heart of the story, there's a struggle of these brothers uh, trying to sort of reconcile, you know, a dysfunctional family where they sit in their in the pecking order of their family with a pretty ahistorical kind of fatherly figure who doesn't dole out a whole lot of love. How you find respect and dignity and your way in life. There is a spy master who grew up under a dictator who's come home to Iraq in the early 2000s and wants to try and rebuild a professional standard made for made to grade, made uh, made to order intelligence unit that can help fight what he knows as the scourge um, that his nation is facing, which is Islamic extremism. And then you have a young woman who before the U.S. invasion in 2003. Abrar uh, was a part of the Sunni elite, very urban, well-educated family. She herself had a whole lot of professional dreams in her life, all of which were, were turned over when Saddam fell and the so- socio-demographic of Iraq flipped away from her favor in favor of, of the people like our two brothers, um, Captain Harith and Munaf el-Sudani. So, It's a story about families. It's a story about heroism. It's a story about how the tide turns against um, social groups and how you as individuals, you know, face adversity. And some of them, some of the characters did a very good job of it. Some of them did it. Mm. Just just like anything in human life or human nature, then, I'd I'd imagine. As a fellow journalist, I mean, you, you don't just walk up to somebody in the street and get them to start speaking to you. This must have been a long process of trust meeting people like i said gaining their trust and finding out where each is is coming from and particularly challenging like i know 
you're trying to work as journalists in Ireland with other people that are from here. But like, how did you cross the boundaries of being an out, very much an outsider and a foreigner? Like, how how did that? Can you talk us through the process of of what I'd imagine was a was a very long process for you to to achieve that? Yeah, I mean, as I said, I've, I've, I've been working in and out of Iraq since 2003. And I, I don't have my, my heritage is, is not, is not, you know, my family is not at all from, from the Middle East. We, we aren't Muslim and we really are. I really was a foreigner when I set foot there for the first time, but I do know some Arabic and I am someone who's grown up in, in the Southern U.S. My, my whole, my whole demeanor is someone who who cares about hospitality who cares about i don't know my grandmother always told me you know you kill people with kindness right mm. so i i i'm i'm a i'm a prize winning investigative journalist who, who 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 doesn't pride herself on her sharp elbows in fact i think that one of my um talents is that my ability to take things very slow and to really kind of blend in with whomever it is that that i'm trying to get to open up to me and, and tell me their secrets mm. so it was it was a long a long slow boil to get to this point you're right and part of that is just trust building you know you need to understand that just i think with the course of, of any professional network or professional relationships there's a mutual respect that gets built over time in large part because of the way that you treat people as 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 an american american working mm-hmm. in the us in in my lifetime with with the Bush administration first in the Middle East, you know, with the idea that there were lots of U.S. Uh, you know U.S. officials who were war criminals in in Iraq, trying to walk all those lines um, sets you up for a long term reputation with people of authority in Iraq. And I'm not stridently anti American. I'm actually a very proud American, but also having to to weave that through and people understanding that you you are who you are and you can still respect them. So I start there, just with the worldview and and being able to to come immediate deadline. But as well, you know, having starting to question elementary, but that no one else is tackling, I think is also part of of the secret and and just pure tenacity. I mean, when I when I moved back to Baghdad in 2017, and I I was asking that very basic question that I alluded to earlier, you know, how did how did Baghdad become safe, and who cracked that nut? No one else in the journalistic corps was really on that path. Everyone else was up at the front lines, you know, writing about daily battles and skirmishes and victories or not. And I was off on my my own tangent. And so when I I was told, you know, sort of early in this quest that there was only one person for me to go to to get the answers, which is the the apocryphal spy master of Baghdad, the main character in my book, um, Abu Ali al-Basri. Abu Ali al-Basri didn't want to give me the time of day to start. You know, he's a busy man. He's got a lot of things on his plate, and he actually is saving his nation, which I didn't quite realize at the time, right? I mean, there's a lot of people with high ranks who sit around twiddling their thumbs instead of actually doing hard work. And so he wouldn't accept my my um, interview request. And when he finally did, I mean, it was after probably, I don't know, at least 10 metaphorical knocks on his door, only um, have no one be at home. He finally did decide to, to talk to me because, I mean, not, not, 
not due to my charm, we hadn't met yet, but because he actually had a story he wanted to tell me. And so that is the best marriage, I think, of investigative reporting and high-level sourcing. When you're not actually the ones to go through the media to tell a story that otherwise they can't tell. And in this case, Abu Ali al-Basri had a great story to tell. I mean, what had happened um, at this point was that the man that he had recruited and sort of shaped into an intelligence officer, the man that he helped build a cover story for and put behind enemy lines, his officer was lost. And Abu Ali al-Basri couldn't declassify his operation. And he wanted to help the family of his fallen officer. And so he decided to use me as the journalistic vehicle in order to tell that tale. And, and so we had several meetings before he actually decided to spill his beans, but, but we got on. He saw that I wasn't a hothead. He saw that I didn't have a whole lot of agendas. He saw that I was actually going to listen to what he had to say and then fact check it and then report it. And so what that turned out to be is the first story that was published in the New York Times about this very heroic tale of wartime espionage. Um, and, and so his main goal, I think, was met. I mean, the main goal was, A, to get some recognition for this unit that had been working in a clandestine fashion ever since it had been founded, but then, two, to assuage some of the hardships that um, his officer's family was experiencing. The thing about Iraq, I think, like most of our countries, is that there's enormous layers of bureaucracy, right? And the red tape involved in trying, you know, the family had found out that that their son, their husband, had fallen behind enemy lines. He was presumed dead, but they didn't have a body. And so in order to get his veterans' benefits, which in Iraq are quite substantial, they needed to get a judge to sign off on the order that he was actually dead without a body. They couldn't do it without any knowledge of the mission he was on. Nobody was willing to bend any of those red lines. And so the story really like helped change this family's life because when it was published, I mean, I will pat myself on the back as a humble brag. I think it was a really, a really good uh, tale originally. Yeah, and it brought up a whole lot of attention. Um, it went viral um, when it was published on the New York Times website. Um, and in Iraq, it was for, a, for almost every Iraqi who was reading English and then for the people who were getting it translated then to Arabic. You know, it was the first time they'd really heard a tale of heroism in an entire generation. These were people who were doing brave things and doing it without any public recognition up to that point. So within, I think, 12 hours or eight hours of, of the story going up, you know, U.S. time uh, in New York, the prime minister's office was on the phone with me in Baghdad saying, we have to get in contact with this family. Can you help us get in contact with this family? So they... Within 72 hours of, of the story being published, all the red tape had disappeared. The family got the benefits they deserved. The public was well aware then of this amazing tale. And the spy master, Abu Ali al-Basri, felt mission accomplished. Uh-huh. And and so it was a it was just one of these like lovely moments where as a journalist you have a great scoop that actually ends up making an impact as well and mm-hmm. it, like in the most basic way possible you know captain harvest sudani who is the hero of this tale uh you know his family comes from the wrong side of the tracks as we say in the u.s you know they were they um they're working class people who are living like working poor not quite in poverty but almost always in poverty 
And um, suddenly the social cachet that they had uh, from having this, this story become public means that they're kind of like local VIPs now. And Captain Hardeth's daughter, you know, sort of rose up in the, like the social rankings. She's been able to marry a young man who was well above her station as it, as, as it once was known, you know, and so it, people's lives have changed uh, for the better. And that's a great feeling as a journalist. Building on that trust then um, meant that all of the characters uh, involved in this in this original reporting were very, very happy for me to keep reporting it out to a full-length book. Yeah, that's true. So like, even if you, if, you don't, if you take it from the, the macro, okay, they helped with the whole thing with the devices, but on a more micro level, if you, if you look at, was it 16 months and 32 suicide bomb attacks that they actually foiled? Like, that's like how many people got saved there. That, that's truly amazing. But uh, what... Well, uh, one thing I really want to ask you about and how maybe you felt as well around this, like this character, Abrar, and what went on in her, like her mind. Okay, so, so she, you know, she was educated. She turned her education to basically make chemical weapons for, for ISIS. But what really got me, I mean, that's all grounds. Okay, right, okay, she's got dragged along in this. But it was the testing of the of ricin on a, on a Syrian goat farmer and watching the... You know, the, the yeah, I just found out, I was like, wow, you know, there's got to be a lot of bitch, there's got to be a lot of hate inside there to, to do that. Or is it, you know, may, maybe it does she fall into the kind of the, the range of psychopathy, perhaps? I, I don't know. It's, uh, I, I, I find her a very fascinating character anyway, but I, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on her? How did she find work, working on that character? Yeah, so. So um, before I went back to Iraq in 2017, I was actually living in London from 2014 to 2017. And so I was sort of enmeshed in, in that like British journalistic culture that was fanning, I mean, just completely obsessed, right, with foreign fighters, and especially uh, young women who were leaving the UK and European countries and going to the Islamic State in the pursuit of some some dream, rightly or wrongly. And, you know, it was it was pretty fascinating to me every time I spoke to a woman who was a devout Muslim, you know, what she felt about, you know, from their from her perspective and an Islamic perspective, what they felt about people who were being, in their minds and my mind, duped into thinking that that Islamic State had had presented some sort of religious paradise on earth. And Iraqis themselves, who, who live and breathe um, and, and, and work in, in a Muslim-majority country, they, they just they can't believe the naivety or the despair that goes into believing that this is an organization that offered anything except brutality. And so from, from my point of view as a journalist, you're trying to fill out, flesh out what a character like this actually looks like instead of um, from a tabloid perspective about what goes through young women's minds. I, I was took that to be a really great journalistic challenge. And and as a journalist challenge, it was actually the most precarious part of, of fulfilling my goals in the book. Guess what? I mean, Abrar's family didn't really want to talk to me, not in the same gusto that, that uh, the Falcons members and Harith al-Sudani's family wanted to, to interact with me. I mean, while I was while I was reporting for the New York Times, and then while I was writing the book, Abrar's own terrorism uh, trial was was going on, and so it was hard to get access to her individually um, as a source, and trying to track down her family and get them to trust me to tell her story in a in a very in like in an in depth way that wasn't 
just going to make her a caricature or a devil was was what I spent a whole lot of time doing. And, and so finally, I did. Finally, I got um, a lot of, of time with her parents. Her mother, who was one of the only people allowed to see her in, in prison, uh, was a conduit for me. I, I would write write questions and notes to Abrar, and her mother would deliver and get answers back from Abrar. So I, I feel like I, like I did... I did my best to, to tell her side of this story in addition to spending a whole lot of time reviewing uh, records uh, that the Iraqis kept about her interrogations and and uh, Iraqi and, and U.S. Um, psychologists and interrogators who uh, had access to her while she was in detention. So, Abrar, you know, we, I, I, I pull it out of, of, she's, I mean, she's an intensely, Iraqi character, right? I mean, her, her her expectations of in life were were completely overturned, as I said, when when Saddam fell and a new Shia-dominated government took power. The backlash of what that meant, you know, in terms of her own professional goals, uh, she felt it very keenly. She lost a very dear sister to an act of violence perpetrated by U.S. forces. And she was filled with despair as a young woman. When you think you have uh, your life, everything's coming at roses, and then suddenly it's actually a garden full of manure with nothing growing in it. She turned to uh, an online world and went down a rabbit hole of extremism and misinformation. And I think that's something that a lot of young people, no matter where you live, can, can really, I think, maybe not sympathize with, but at least understand. This is a tale of someone who didn't have a whole lot of options, and the option that she got some release in and, and felt some 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 sympathy with happened to be Islamic extremists. So then she goes off on this sort of diabolical road trip where she um, she leaves Baghdad and heads towards the Islamic State with this very misguided goal that her scientific prowess, which she was rightly proud of, was somehow going to be accepted in a world full of misogynistic, brutal men. And so Abrar's hard not lessons in life were, were very, very dire, including being that, that you were referring to, Derek, about testing out a biological weapon or would-be biological weapon on human beings. So she has sins to pay for, but her road, her road to perdition, I think, was was a pretty tragic one at the same time. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, you, you stay true to, I suppose, what, the, the, you don't sensationalize things in the book, which is good. Which, which it, it makes it much easier, I suppose, for somebody that would be very interested in history, just that it's real. You, you get the question, you, you've met the characters, you, you've done all the work, uh, and it comes across uh, really, really, really well. And, and I suppose now. Obviously, you're you've changed what you're going to do in life. Uh, you've you know you've you've obviously again what I like to say like I know you have an opinion on, on obviously how the US behaves and whatnot in there, but again it's a very real thing. There's people who are trying to do good. There's people who are trying you know just obviously weren't doing what, what they should do and uh, this is just the way it is and uh, that's what happened and obviously your views about what 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 might might think they should do in the future. Like, where do you see now? I suppose it's big. It's an off-book question, but where do you see the U.S.'s role now, or do you feel that it's at a point whereby it needs a, a strong, you know, a strong president that can steer it in a certain direction? Do you think uh, with China and with Russia, is where might there be some problems now ahead, or, or if, if any at all? Yeah, I, you know, I spent um, the majority of my career as a journalist, sort of covering 
democracy is in transition, democracy is in crisis. I actually, Russian is my second language. I started my career in the former Soviet Union. So the rise, the rise of Putin, the decline of democracy is like, it's something that is, is hardwired into my DNA. And one of the reasons why I wanted to come home to the U.S. is that here we find our nation at, at that same sort of, I think, inflection point. I'm not going to say tipping point because I actually am very foolish about America, but it is at an inflection right now. And that has to do with the fact that our political, our political firmament and, and our political parties are, are crumbling. And so there needs to be a very urgent renewal about what it means to... I, I think with the foundations of our republic in, in, in America are, are built on an, an engaged citizenry, right? I mean, there are all of the, we have a, a separation of powers where three different branches of, of federal government are supposed to work hand in glove to keep each other in check. We have a, a group of, of, um, of voting age citizens who are supposed to elect people based on facts, not disinformation. Those things are, are we're, we're, we're seeing a lot of struggle about those very basic tenets of, of the American democracy. And so as a journalist, I feel very well placed now to be writing and reporting about those issues here. I think that there are, as a, as a student of 20th century American history, um, and someone who's covered 20th century American history as a professional, you know, there's there's never there's never any narrow road, no matter how much that that Hollywood would have us believe or or military biographies would have us believe. There's history is messy, and sometimes it's saved by by a group of gallant people. Sometimes it's saved by by just sheer luck and and perseverance. America has done. Uh, really bad things overseas. Like, what can I say? There are, there's, there's all good intentions do not make bad outcomes any better, especially if you're in the country or in the, the neighborhood where those bad outcomes are felt. And I think as an America, in America, as our democracy is also in crisis, I think Americans are really beginning to reflect on all of it, on, on the, the inequalities that we have perpetrated here at home, as well as the inequalities that we perpetrate abroad. And what what we're going to do about it, America hasn't decided. Uh, but I do think that what needs to be done um, from just a very individual local level is that Americans need to spend more time learning from history and, and actually remembering that we do have a shared reality in common ground and common facts. And so there's there's there should be a larger audience not just for my book, but for, for books that are trying to help build a more complex and full picture about what our histories look like. I don't think that we should shy away from complexity or, or what in Georgia now where I live has become known as dissenting views or uh, disruptive views. You know, the idea that we have as people or as uh, societies have become too fragile to handle a lively discussion, a, a conflicting discussion about what's right and what's wrong is, it's a shame to me. I think that, I think that right will win out when, when put into a, a, you know, a, a, a well-reasoned and, and factual-based debate, but we have to have those debates. We can't cancel each other out. And, um, and hopefully, hopefully, um, knock on wood, that, uh, that will be um, steering that ship of America back in that direction. And that's it that we oh, yeah. to see in your in your role now with your new 
career that you've embarked on. Can you tell us just a little bit about that so that we can alert our viewers to it and maybe turn turn them on to it? Oh, thanks. Yeah. So I've, um, I, I grew up in, in a military family and in the U S uh, that means moving, moving around a lot. My dad would, uh, get, uh, shipped out, um, uh, or get new orders and, and we'd move across, across the U S. And so I've sort of come home now to uh, Savannah, Georgia, which is, is a beautiful part of, of the U S for those who haven't come and visited. Um, Georgia was one of our original 13 colonies. Savannah also happens to be a port city with a with a large, diverse population. Um, it's a majority black town, in fact. Um, so a lot of, of, of interesting crevices that mirror America and mirror what America society writ large is going through. Georgia itself is now considered a bellwether state. Our previous election, our two senators, uh, we, we elected as Democrats, which flipped control of the Senate, which has helped uh, the Biden administration pass some of the um, the big their signature bills um, and laws that, that they've been attempting to do for the last uh, two and a half years. So Georgia is is really big in America's consciousness. I've come home now after my book, and we we had uh, I actually just literally finished the final the final draft of the book. It was ready for publication. It was January 2020, and of course we know now in hindsight that COVID was about to hit, and we were all about to come to shutdown. But before that happened, in February 2020, just down the road from me here in Savannah, Georgia, there was a young man, 25 year old black man named Ahmad Arbery who went out on a jog on a Sunday afternoon into a majority white neighborhood where three men, vigilante style, sort of hunted him down and killed him. And so for 74 days after this happened, nobody knew actually what had happened. COVID had hit, there was a shutdown, but there was also no local news outlet that was was trying to figure this out. We live in, I mean, it's, America's a huge, a huge country, right? I mean, we cross four or five time zones, there's almost 400 million people, and we have huge news deserts where there's no local news outlet, let alone trustworthy. There's just zero local news outlets. And so down the road for me in Brunswick, Georgia, Ahmad Arbery has become one of the rallying cries for the, the, the America's now racial reckoning. But for 74 days, nobody knew what had happened, and local authorities were very happy just to cover this up. Local authorities within hours had claimed that this was a justified killing. And then after a lot of local journalism started being published, we realized that actually it was a a hate crime. It was cold-blooded murder. And the three men who did kill him have now been convicted of of murder. And so what I've done um, in this interim is, is to rededicate myself to reviving local investigative news in my part of Georgia. And so my news organization uh, is called The Current. We are on the seacoast and The Current, as in the um, the sea current. We are, our, our website, uh, the current GA for Georgia, the current GA.org, because not only are we reviving local investigative journalism, we're doing it as a nonprofit. So, much like The Guardian in the UK is a nonprofit, so are we, which is why, again, we are an ORG instead of a .com. So, we were putting my sort of big city news talents uh, into a local accountability lens, and we're, I think. Good journalism is important. Facts are important. It can actually save people's lives. 
just today, the local newspaper in, in North Dublin that I started out on is closed today. Um, they only announced after, I don't know how, how long it's been around. You're talking generations and generations, and it's just shut down today. I think across America, there's, I, I don't know what figures, like hundreds of local newspapers closed. I mean, it's something like two or three a day at one stage as the revenues were down. So, you know, it is important. Like like yeah. you said, that there is news deserts. We're a smaller country, obviously, so we won't have that. But with the closure of what was the Fingal Independent, that's, that's a, that's a, that was like within every family's home out in that part of, of Fingal in North Dublin. It's a huge, they're cornerstones of the community. They're not just a newspaper, as, as, you, as you well know. So I'd have to say for the benefit of local journalism, they're lucky to have you. Bring your big world experience to it indeed. Um, so we must look out for that, Derek. We'll have to keep a yeah, for sure. Watch, and I, 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 I suspect there's another book in you yet. Yeah, yeah. Well, writing a book is its own exquisite form of torture. So I'm really glad to be. He's done a couple of them. Yeah, yeah. He knows what what it's like. Yeah, it it helped. uh, I think build my. when, when COVID lockdown started, I, I felt like, you know, my muscle memory was there to be um, sheltering in place because that's what it takes to write a book. My real my real love is, is you know, sort of hot boiler uh, noir fiction. And so I think that with the next book, I would really like to write a murder mystery. Uh, you're you're living in the right place for that, though, for the, for the ambience. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, steeped in his in, in accurate history, but fiction nonetheless. Excellent, excellent. Listen, thank you so much. This yeah, has been a pleasure, amazing. and uh, really appreciate uh, your your faith in the in coming on to the hip historians. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll see you see you again sometime. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. Thanks all. Well, that was great. Yeah, uh, really nice woman. Well, she's just so brave, like, you know, yeah. like, able to get that access as a, as a Western. But I wanted to say it to her as well, as a woman as well. That's, you know, like, it's it's Iraqi society, you know, it's a very patriarchal society. And she managed to gain the trust as a Westerner, a Western journalist, Western woman. Some achievement, really. Is it is. A lot, a lot of hard, hard groundwork put in there to try and make that book happen. And a great book that it is with a really good narrative. So, uh, yeah, we'll rush out and buy The Spymaster of Baghdad. And thank you very much, Margaret Coker, uh, for a great interview. Fantastic stuff. Guys, listen in, check it out. We'll be sharing it on our social media. Do all the usual stuff. You know, we've got our YouTube channels up there as well, where we look like total idiots. Um, but having <laughs> Having a bit of fun, poking fun at ourselves. You know, it's all a bit of crack that we're having, Derek, isn't it? Yeah, it is, it is, it is for sure. And uh, we want to continue doing that. And yeah, sure, we're, we're, we're getting better as we go along. And the guests are, uh, yeah, the guests are just amazing. So we'll, we'll keep them coming for you, folks. And that's a wrap, as they say. And have a good evening, Mr. Federson Hall. We shall see you in the next episode, which will be Dan Golden, I do believe. Looking forward to this one, Derek. Talk to you then. Yeah, take care. Bye.